Week three of our Grace Orange Basics Sermon Series. What a treat it has been to hear our elders and pastors as they've opened up God's Word. Today we are focusing on making disciples. Now we exist to glorify God through lives transformed by the gospel. So I think it makes a lot of sense that we would want to be a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and sacrificially serving Jesus. Now in week one, we focused on what it means to be Christ-centered community and how we need to worship and devote ourselves to God's word and prayer and pray with each other and walk together in unity as we follow Jesus first. Week two, we focused on proclaiming the gospel, the good news that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be reconciled to God and that we are accepted by God, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. And now today, making disciples. Brian Zuniga, Alex Valencia, Dave Strzeski, and Doug Roller will be preaching on making disciples and highlighting four actions that we need to take to make disciples whose lives are transformed by the gospel. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 11. When you find that, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'll be starting at verse 19 of Acts chapter 11 and reading down to chapter 12, verse 5. Then I will pray, and then Brian, and then Alex, and then Dave, and then Doug, and then I will wrap it up at the end. Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. 
And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is the word of God. And let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that by your Spirit, you use your beautiful word in our hearts to change us, to disciple us, to deepen us. And Lord, I pray that we would have our hearts set on you today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as Mike mentioned, we're going to be talking this morning about four actions we must take in order to make disciples whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. And the first action we're going to talk about really logically has to come first, and that is to reach unbelievers with the gospel. Before anyone can be a disciple, they first have to come to faith in Christ. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. Reaching unbelievers with the gospel is the first action we need to take. In verse 19 of chapter 11, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Stephen is a name that probably sounds familiar to you if you've read the book of Acts. He was kind of a big character in the first half of Acts. He comes on the scene in Acts chapter 6. He's one of those appointed by the disciples for a special kind of service ministry. But he was not liked by some of the people. In verse 10 of chapter 6, it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It's too much wisdom. They take him before the high priest. He goes on trial. At his trial, he preaches essentially the entire Old Testament in a single sermon, which is something that I would like to try at some point. And at the end of it, they stone him. They stone him to death. Paul, who's then, at that point, still Saul, is standing by. And right after that, in Acts chapter 8, Saul starts this intense persecution of the church. In Acts 8.1, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So you have what seems to be this terrible thing. This dynamic church leader is killed for his faith. Intense persecution of the church starts as a result, and the people who are part of this church in Jerusalem are scattered throughout all Judea and Samaria. And that sounds like a terrible thing. And persecution, I suppose, viewed in a vacuum is. But what, was, what resulted, what came as a result of that persecution is that all of these people who scattered throughout this land became missionaries, essentially, wherever they went. No matter where they were, they were preaching the gospel. And you get all kinds of people who were saved early on. The Ethiopian eunuch is saved through Philip's ministry. In that same chapter, Paul is converted. 
Cornelius is converted. The, uh, the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles. And we see all of these different things happen as a result of the church scattering. But then when we get to our verse in verse 11, we're backing up. And we're going to take the same concept. There's this persecution that happened from Stephen and these people scattered, but they went, these people that we're talking about now went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Phoenicia was, was past Judea. It was past Samaria. It was above it. Cyprus was an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Antioch was 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So these are people who were scattered even farther because of the persecution of Stephen. And look at what they do. As they went, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. This sounds like kind of a bizarre thing in our setting. Like, why were they only talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ to a certain kind of people? But at the time, this was very normal. Evangelism to the Gentiles really hadn't started in earnest. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles hadn't yet begun. His specific ministry. And so this would have been, at the time, very normal to be telling Jews about Jesus Christ. And essentially everyone who had been scattered was doing that exact thing. Except... But there were some of them, and I love this description, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Hellenists are are non-Jews. They're essentially Gentiles. They're Greek-speaking non-Jews. And these men... Men from Cyprus and Cyrene. What was going on in Cyprus and Cyrene that these guys just had it in their mind that they should preach the gospel to everyone and not just Jews? Was there like a really good pastor there who had trained them? Like, oh, you need to preach the gospel to everyone. Probably a children and family pastor. I'm pretty sure those are the best ones. (laughs) Had a Bible study, studied the word together, and he sent them out. But they get to Antioch. Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Only Rome and Alexandria are bigger. There's about a half million people there. It's busy. It's a center for religion, politics, intellect, and trade. It was an enormous place. Had many of the cultural things that come with being a large city but also it was full of all of the same corruption and sin and terribleness that comes from being a big city. In Antioch, you would never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. And they came and they saw these people and their reaction to them was to preach the gospel. They didn't see a people and think, man, these these people are so sinful, and the city is so fallen. If only we could go someplace a little nicer. There's got to be a suburb of Antioch somewhere, Antioch by the lakes, you know, just just a mile or two outside. The schools are nicer, the streets are cleaner. All the houses have front yards. 
We'll go there. We'll preach the gospel there. We'll start a church there. That's not what they did. And it doesn't say this specifically, but I can't help but think that these people just saw a fallen world and had compassion. They didn't see people who were disgusting, who they wanted nothing to do with. They saw people who needed the gospel. And they were willing to proclaim it even to those people. And verse 21 the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number turned, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of God was with them, blessing them in their ministry. And we need both of those things, don't we? We need the initiative and the desire to go out and do the work, to see people who need the gospel and to be faithful to proclaim it to them, but we need God's hand working with us. And we need to pray and ask that God would move when we proclaim the gospel. We need to pray that through our ministry, a great number of people would believe and turn to the Lord. Four actions we must take to make disciples whose lives are changed and transformed by the gospel. As Brian just said, we must reach unbelievers with the gospel. And secondly, we must teach unbelievers, or sorry, we must teach believers to obey Christ's commands. We, that's you and I, the church, have been given instructions by Jesus to make disciples. I'm sure many of us remember and know the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus gathers his disciples and gives them sort of his last uh, orders. And he says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We need to remember something about making disciples and discipleship that it takes time and it takes attention. I wanted to briefly look back over these verses. We won't read the entire thing again, but uh, to look at the time and attention by uh, Barnabas and Saul in this passage. In verse 22, there's a journey made. The the, uh, disciples in Jerusalem send Barnabas to Antioch, and it's easy for us to just read this line and sort of gloss over it. But as Brian said, it was over 300 miles. And when is the last time that any of us walked 300 miles? That's a long way. This wasn't a day trip. This was going to take time. And in verse 25, once Barnabas was there and saw the need for someone to teach these people, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Again, it's easy to read that he left for Tarsus and came back. This is over 100 miles from Antioch to Tarsus, another long journey. And it says that he went to look for Saul. 
He wasn't even quite sure where he was exactly. This was going to be a, a bit of a difficulty. In verse 26, it said that once they were there, they met for a whole year with the church. There's an emphasis on the fact that he says a whole year. This is something that we still do today. I worked on that project for a whole month. It took me a whole week to read this book. This wasn't a day, a week, a month. This was a whole year. Intensive time given to the believers in Antioch. How do we know their attention, their focus was on Jesus? Well, in verse 23, Barnabas comes to see the believers in Antioch, and he rightly discerns that the grace of God is upon them. It says right there, and that their lives were truly being changed by the gospel. So he exhorts them to remain faithful and steadfast. And you can see the fruit of what's happening that a great many people were added to the Lord in verse 24, and that in verse 26, they are being called Christians for the first time. The local people of Antioch were seeing something about these people, that they were followers of Christ, and they began calling them Christians. Whether you are a parent a teacher, a mentor, a coach of some kind, if you've been given the task to train a person to do something, to learn something new, then you know that this is not something that happens overnight. It's a long process. And hopefully we find ourselves in situations like Barnabas and Saul did, where you have believers who are eager to learn. They want to know. There's unstoppable growth. There's longing to be changed by Jesus. But it can be discouraging when your child doesn't obey, your student doesn't practice, and especially disheartening when we are teaching believers to obey Jesus and they fail to understand the truth of Scripture or they disobey and return to sin. We can avoid this kind of discouragement by realizing two things. One, that it's Jesus who changes and transforms lives. It says right there again in verse 23 that the grace of God was upon them. And secondly, we need to remember that it takes time. We need to be patient, understanding, and committed to seeing lives transformed by the gospel. It's a process, again, that continues our entire lives. Knowing that, We need to be in it for the long haul. But time is only half of the equation here. If we want to be effective in teaching people to obey Christ's commands, we need to focus our attention and our time on Jesus. I know that from my own experience, it's very easy for me to just spend time with people. But that doesn't always mean that our attention is on Christ, or even that my attention is on the other person. When it comes to discipleship, my goal cannot be to make a little Alex. We can't make followers of Mike or followers of insert your name here. Just like Saul's charge, we need to remember to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We must always point people to Jesus and not ourselves.
the third element of making disciples that we're looking up is the idea of building up one another. And the Bible, the New Testament particularly, practically gushes with thoughts and words and ideas that reflect this concept. Ideas talking about encouraging one another, loving one another, laying a foundation of building up one another, admonishing one another, even rebuking one another at, uh, at the appropriate times, strengthening one another. All these things speak to building up one another, a critical element of making disciples and something that is given to us as not only a command, but also involves a supernatural process. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, build up one another. It's a charge that's given to the body of Christ with the idea that we promote in each other, and in this church body locally, globally of course as well, but for us locally, a greater likeness to Jesus Christ. That's what building up one another means. It's not only a biblical mandate, it's also a supernatural process. It doesn't just uh, happen because we will it to happen. Colossians 2.19 says that the entire body, being fitted and joined together by the joints and ligaments, that's you and I and our giftedness that we exercise, grows with a growth that is from God. It's a supernatural process. There's a group of cyclists that I try not to ride with because they are bent on always taking the more difficult path, which usually means as we're going along and there's a route to take that's uphill or more difficult, automatically the decision is, if there's a way to go uphill, we go uphill. Why? Because they're going to be further strengthened by making that decision. They're not strengthening themselves. themselves. They're making the decision to do that, knowing that the result is going to be strengthening. And so with us. We don't backbite, we don't gossip, we don't tear down, we don't give the look, because all those are the antithesis of building up one another. Acts 11 here, verses 27 through 30, particularly provides some principles that the early disciples used to build up one another. I want us to leave with one thought, that at any opportunity we have, we decide to build up one another. So I've got three points. The first point is, build up one another. And the couple of principles in those verses, 27 through 28, are these. Let me read it. It says, Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren. The first thing we see is that these Disciples, Agabus, particularly the prophet, came down and said there would be a famine. The believers apparently received that as the word of God. There was no philosophical discussion about, wow, what does he mean by famine? I wonder if that means, uh, you know, a, a dearth in, uh, in, uh, in my emotional state. Or, there's none of that. It's received as the word of God and should have been. At this time, the canon wasn't put together, so the word by the prophet was the word of God. They received it as the word of God, which is exactly the principle that we need to apply to our own lives as we read and hear and study. It's the word of God, and what it says, we decide to do. We also see in that verse that there's implications that the disciples took from the word that they then later employed. Implications like when we read that we're to maintain the unity of the body. Well, when it comes time to do the sports court, we're not going to get hung up over what color it is, right? 
because it's more important to maintain the unity of the body. When extra rows are put in place, because of the principle, the implication by that verse is that we're not going to worry about what color the chairs are or anything like that. So there's implications that were understood by the believers by the word that there would be a famine, and then they acted on him, as, as we'll see. Likewise, that's what we do. We believe the word of God, and then we think through, we meditate on the implications of it for our lives. The second point is to build up one another. And we do that through the principles given in verse 29. It says, And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. In the proportion that any of the disciples had means, they immediately, once they understood the implications of the famine, they began immediately to say, what do I have in the way of resources to meet those needs? I have a wagon that I can take goods there. I've got some land that I can sell. I have some resources that I can spend. Immediately they began to look and, and uh, assess their assets and how they could meet those needs. Likewise, we understand the implications of the Word of God and whatever our area of giftedness is or resources that the Lord has blessed us with, how can we build up one another? It says that as they looked at their assets, they each then determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren. They didn't just look at what they had. They said, I can put this to use. I'm going to determine to meet those needs. They immediately looked at their assets and said, here's what's going on in Jerusalem. How can I do it? They thought that part of the plan through. But then they said, you know what? Let's determine to do this. And so they got together. And so likewise, when we understand the implications of the Word of God, we then say, I'm going to do that. By the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, by the resources given to me, I'm now going to determine to put those to use. And then the third point is that we build up one another by the principles given in verse 30. It says, And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Very simple. They followed through. How many times do we understand the implications of something going around us? And we resolve and determine to do it. And then a week goes by and I think, oh man, I meant to, I meant to do that. And uh, another week goes by and you think, ah, it'd be kind of dumb to do it now. So, you know, and uh, it, this happens with one another. It happens in our own families. But they did exactly what we ought to do and apply is that once they determined to use these resources to give of themselves, to use their giftedness, this they did. What a simple and profound element of building up one another. But lastly, they sent it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. We need to engage one another in the process of building up one another. The gift of mercy is not one of my gifts. Those of you who know me well probably recognize that maybe. And, uh, but there's been times where other people who have the gift of mercy have asked me to go with them to the hospital. We're going to go visit somebody. And I say, okay, and I'm going to learn, and the person who uh, is there is blessed. The person who asked me is blessed. I learn, try and learn. And critical to building up one another is engaging one another in the process. What are you doing with your giftedness? How can you bring someone else along? 
Who's mentoring you in your relationship with Christ? Who are you mentoring? As Dawson Trotman, who founded the Navigators, famously said, where's your woman? Where's your man? Who are you working with to build up into the likeness of Christ? Finally, we build up one another. We do this because it's a biblical mandate, recognizing it's spirit-led and a supernatural process. We're attentive to the word, thinking through and meditating on what its implications are for us. We take stock of our assets, our giftedness, and determine to take action. And then we follow through with our resolve and engage others in the process. You know, there's no marketing scheme than in Antioch that they decided to call themselves Christians. The pastors and elders didn't get together and say, you know what, we need to kind of get this thing going. What would be a cool name that we could apply to ourselves? Uh, what about the, the follower? Well, no, no. What about, and they, they didn't come upon Christian as a marketing scheme. It's because they were identified with and began to exhibit the characteristics of Christ that those outside said, these people are acting like Christ. Grace Church of Orange, I am so pleased that we see this building up of one another in this body. And yet as Paul, in the very context of building up one another, told the Thessalonian church, excel still more. And that's our charge as well. The fourth thing about making disciples is that we must expect persecution. Persecution from the world. And persecution is probably something you don't think about all that often. I know I really don't think about it that much. uh, Because where we live, persecution is so rare that we really don't expect it. But when it suddenly comes upon us and we find ourselves being harassed for our faith, we are often caught off guard and not prepared to handle this persecution that we might feel. We wonder, what is God doing? Why is He putting me through this pain and suffering? Why am I being persecuted? We shouldn't feel this way, though, because God's Word teaches us in 1 Corinthians that we will be hated and reviled. We will be slandered, looked upon as the scum of the earth and refuse of all these things because we are followers of Christ, because we are His disciples. There are many instances in the book of Acts where the early disciples of Christ suffered much, They were thrown in jail. They were beaten. They were put to death because of their faith. And Acts 12, 1 through 5 is one of these instances. Herod the king had laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he didn't just lay hands on them, though. It says that he laid violent hands. He intended to inflict pain. He carried it out even to the point of putting James to death. And the result was that it pleased the Jews. They were happy about what he had done. And because it pleased the Jews, he kept up his pursuit of the believers, arresting and imprisoning Peter as well. You know, persecution is difficult, but it is used by God to shape us into his image. And as disciples, we will experience joy and peace and comfort, but we will also experience pain and suffering because Jesus did so. And as his disciples... We shouldn't be surprised when we face persecution. Luke 14 tells us that that Jesus said there would be a cost to following Him. To be His disciple, we would need to give up certain relations in our lives, relationships with friends, relationships even with family. 
that our lifestyles would need to change. We can't do the things that we did once before anymore. And when we said yes to Jesus, when we said yes to Jesus, we said no to everything else that the world has to offer. John 15 tells us that Jesus uh, said that we would be hated and persecuted by the world because the world hated him and persecuted him. As his disciples, we no longer look like this world. We have a different motivation for living. We have a different goal to pursue. We stand out because we stand up for what is right and what is true. As disciples of Jesus, we have a a light within us that shines within the darkness. It reveals the lies and the evil desires of men. And therefore, we are hated by these people who are lost in their sin. And they will attempt to exercise control over our lives often manipulating those who are in authority to find ways to punish us for our beliefs. And even though the world hates us and asserts its authority, God's authority will always be greater. Herod asserted his authority, and it cost James his life. Killing James empowered him because it pleased the people, so he put Peter into prison to face that same fate as James. Now, I don't think he was really completely convinced of his power, though, because if he was, he wouldn't have guarded Peter so heavily. It says here that Herod placed four squads of soldiers that would have been really two soldiers within the cell shackled to Peter and two outside the doors guarding. And then every three hours, it says that he would change the guards, that four more would come in and take their place. And this was done three hours, four times, which resulted in about 16 military-trained soldiers fighting men guarding one fisherman who we know didn't know how to use a sword. (laughs) However, later on in this chapter, we read that Peter was miraculously set free. The chains fell off his wrists because God intervened and displayed his power and his authority over man. God's authority was greater than man's, And this should bring us comfort and peace. We should never fear being persecuted. Jesus promised us that he would be with us always. And as his disciples, our relationship with Jesus gives us the strength and the endurance we need to handle trials in our lives. As his disciples, we are joined with other believers who will build us up. We are joined with other believers who will spend time with us and encourage us through prayer. This is what will sustain us in our times of persecution. But let's face it, we may never really be persecuted to the point of death. There are many things that threaten our lives. There are many things that are out there that that seem like persecution. But we don't know what it really is like. Because it's been estimated that 100 million Christians are being persecuted around this world today. Some to the point of death. And the question we think is, well, what should we do about that? What What should we do? Well, we must do what the church did for Peter. It says that they were in earnest prayer for him. So we must remain faithful to earnestly pray for those who are being persecuted. When it says they were praying for Peter earnestly, it means that it was without ceasing. It was an intense, steady prayer that went up for him. We need to do the same for those who are being persecuted around the world. Lifting them up in prayer, asking God to give them the strength they need to endure. Even when we feel as if our prayers don't matter, we must keep on praying. Even when we wonder about what God is doing, 
we must keep on praying. Even when His people are being put through pain and suffering, we must keep on praying. And even if we find ourselves having to endure persecution, we must keep on praying. You know, persecution really isn't all bad, and we can prepare for it. First of all, we need to just recognize that it is God's sovereign choice to save from, some from persecution and not others. He will do as He pleases for His glory and for our good. And secondly, we need to accept that persecution is His way of making us more and more like Christ. When a sculptor carves a statue out of stone, he takes a hammer and a chisel and begins the process of chipping away at its edges. In some places, he chips away larger pieces of stone, in other places, smaller. The hammer pounds and the chisel breaks off piece after piece after piece. But it is all done to shape and transform this piece of stone into a beautiful work of art. As disciples whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must expect persecution from the world. It is the hammer and chisel that God uses to chip away at the hard edges of our lives and shapes us into the image of His Son, creating a beautiful work of art. As we conclude our time together this morning, we want you to think deeply about some things. Brian talked about reaching unbelievers with the gospel. One of the actions we must take in order to make disciples transform. We need to make disciples of all people, all ages, all conditions. How exactly? God's word says disciples are made. Have you realized that in the charge to go and make disciples that Jesus gave us, Jesus has actually given us an instruction that we cannot do? You and I cannot make disciples. Well, we can make disciples of us, You and I cannot make disciples of Christ. Now, why would God give this to us? Why would God give us an instruction that we cannot do on our own? So that we will trust His process. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Have you thought about this? Fishers of men equals followers of Christ equals disciples of Christ. It's the perfect trifecta. Fishers of men are followers of Christ. They're disciples of Jesus. And God is never going to ask you to do something that you can do in your own strength. You can make clones of you. You can make stormtroopers if you'd like. But you are not called to make people who know and look like you. God makes disciples who look like Jesus. God wants us to be in the process with Him, used as tools to make disciples of Jesus, who look like Jesus. 
not us. Alex talked about uh, teaching believers to obey Jesus and Dave on building up believers. Disciples invest in the lives of other people via teaching, via building up. Yesterday, my son Michael and I drove five hours, two and a half hours, actually three and a half hours up and two and a half hours back, so that would be more than five hours. To go watch someone run a race that took one minute. Now, some of you would say, that's not very good time management. It was because of who we were going to see run. One of my daughters, one of Michael's sisters, and we wanted her to know that it was not a sacrifice to drive for that long and that far to stand there and cheer her on and say, we're with you. You see, that's what the the church of Jesus Christ for each other. Paul said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Doug talked about expecting persecution from the world. The very thing we don't want. Jesus says, the disciple is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so disciples are to treasure Christ above all things. Do you treasure Jesus above all things? Sometimes my heart slips a gear on that one too often. The disciples of Christ are willing to give everything, even lose their lives for Christ because He has given everything to them. There was a teenage girl in 17th century France. Her name was Marie Durand, and she was a young bride. She was ripped away from her husband and thrown in prison for going to her brother's preaching service. She was a Huguenot. She was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. She believed that salvation came by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they told her, you can have freedom if you would just say two simple words. I recant. She spent 38 years in that prison. She became a light to many, uh, sharing Christ and building believers up. And you can still see what she wrote on the walls of that prison. Two words. See here, the two words were, I resist. I resist. I, I will not renounce my faith in Christ. I will not recant of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You know, we like to say it takes one to know one, right? Well, it takes one to make one here. It takes a disciple of Jesus to make a disciple of Jesus. And the question is, are you one of those? Lord God, we thank you that you are in charge of this whole process and that you or the one that is in charge of everything. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity in our own hearts about whether we are disciples of Christ. And that you would give us your power, your, the power of your Holy Spirit to, to be disciples of Christ.
in a lost world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.